What's up, everybody? It's Austin Rivers from the Minnesota Timberwolves. It's a new year, and I have a new podcast here at The Ringer, Off Guard, hosted by me and my guy, Pasha Hagigi. Austin and I go way back and talk so much hoop already that we figured it was time to fire up the mics and let you in on all of these conversations. Every week, Pasha and I will hit on the biggest stories happening in the league and get Austin's perspective of someone currently hooping in the NBA. Tap into Off Guard every Friday on The Ringer NBA Show feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Another busy pod. Brian Robb from Mass Live will join us. We'll get into the Celts with B-Rob. I can't wait for the season to get underway, partially because the Patriots stink. It was good seeing the Bruins winning on opening night on Wednesday night, but really excited for the Celtics season. We're going to chat with B-Rob about some observations so far in the preseason and also some predictions for the season. So we'll do that. Also, Vic Tafer, who covers the Raiders for The Athletic, will join us. We'll preview the Pats and the Raiders coming up on Sunday and also get into Josh McDaniels' current job status with the organization because things are not going great for Josh with the Raiders. But before we get into that, I have to get into some of the nuggets from Andrew Callahan and Doug Hyde's story up at the Herald right now. It's entitled Inside Mac Jones's Patriots Downfall from Promising Rookie to lost QB. So we just had Doug on the pod Tuesday, of course, and he comes on all the time. Callahan's my guy as well. This is really great stuff. Well done by these guys. And if you haven't read the story in its entirety, I'd encourage you to do so. The details are great and it's really well written and it paints a picture of why Mac and the Patriots offense has been so bad. So I did want to highlight a few things from the article before we chat with B. Robin Vic. So just a couple of things that stuck out to me. So First of all, I have to scratch this itch as the metric man, and this is in reference to the Patriots receivers. So, quote, according to a league source, part of that business includes a front office that evaluates players almost entirely without assistance of analytics. GPS tracking data such as publicly available information from next-gen stats would have tipped them off that a receiver like Parker generates the least separation in the league. Poor separation currently plagues all the team's receivers except six-round draft pick DeMario Douglas. So, you know me. 
This really irritates me. How many times have you heard me tell you that for three consecutive seasons, Devontae Parker was last in the NFL in separation? Good news for Parker. He improved this season. He's only second to last in the NFL in separation at two yards. Previous three years, last place this year. He's second to last. So congrats to Devontae Parker for not being last in that particular category at this particular time. That belongs to Alec Pierce. That title is the worst separator in the NFL. And it just judges you how much separation do you have between you and the defender when you're targeted. Devontae Parker is one of the worst guys in the league. So that stuck out to me. But the most disturbing part about this is it seems like the Patriots are just stuck in the early 2000s. You have all this information that tells you how players get open, right? When we're talking about analytics and in particular tracking data. And according to the story that Callahan and Doug Kide talk to people within the NFL, so Patriots don't use this stuff, right? They're just ignoring it. Why? I'm not saying this is the only thing you go to, right? It's not, hey, we're only judging by the tracking data and the analytics. Like you have to put in scouting as well. But most of the league uses this stuff. Why wouldn't you if you're the Patriots? It's really, from my perspective, an arrogant approach. Hey, we've done it one way, so we don't have to change things up. We can continue doing things the way we've been doing them forever. It's almost like Greg Popovich, right? And Greg Popovich made an adjustment. If you go back to Greg Popovich multiple times has talked about how he hates the three, right? It's ruined the game, blah, 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 which I disagree with. But nonetheless, he's pointed this out on multiple occasions. But when he won that title in 2014, he embraced the three. That's how they won it. They were taking a bunch of threes. So he realized there was a change. I needed to make it. Now, Bill, unlike Popovich, Popovich had one of those championships. I'm not comparing, like, Bill obviously won championships. But in this particular thing, Bill has never been good at finding receivers. Like, his best guy is Deion Branch. Congratulations. That was all the way back in, what, 2002. And now there are tools out there, tracking data, analytics, that could help you actually improve and the Patriots are just ignoring that. Like, I understand it's a change. You don't want to make a change. Like, Popovich didn't want to make a change. He embraced the three. I just don't understand why the Patriots haven't adjusted to that, right? And quite frankly, that's just flat out lazy. If you're not good at this to begin with, you have something that can actually help you. And the Patriots didn't take advantage of it. It just doesn't make any sense. We've never seen so many receivers hit in the draft in recent history. Think about all these receivers that come into the NFL and they're so good right away. Don't you think part of that is these other teams are using tracking data and are using analytics, right? Nikhil Harry, just think about this. He couldn't separate at the collegiate level. He was considered to be a contested catch guy at the college level. Actually, if you look at the numbers going back to the collegiate level, his teammate, Brandon Ayuk, was a separator who actually is a good receiver at the NFL and a big yak guy as well, which he did at college. Nikhil Harry didn't do that stuff, right? So just think about it from that perspective is... When you drafted Nikhil Harry, everybody knew he was a contested catch guy. He couldn't separate. You know who were the guys that were separators? A.J. Brown and Debo Samuel. That information was available to all the teams in the NFL, but it didn't seem like the Patriots wanted to use that information that was clearly there for them and presented if they used this stuff. So it'd be one thing if the Patriots, like, you could say, hey, if the Patriots just found all these great receivers, like, okay, if they don't want to use this stuff, fine, because they already have success drafting receivers or signing receivers in free agency, right? If you find out like, hey, the Steelers don't use any of this stuff, it's like, oh, well, hey, they don't need it. I mean, they have their own method to their madness because they find all these receivers, but this is the Patriots. This is one of the real weak spots for Bill Belichick. 
and he's not using this stuff, it's really malpractice, especially when you have a problem with this particular position. And here are the results of Bill's method. So receivers and tight ends this season, minimum of 12 targets, 129 qualifiers. Here are where the Patriots receivers rank in yards per reception. Demario Douglas, 14.3, 30th. Good number for a rookie, and he may not even play on Sunday. He's in concussion protocol still. Kendrick Bourne tied for 52nd at 12.1. Devontae Parker, 10.8, tied for 77th. Hunter Henry tied for 84th at 10.4. Mike Gusecki, 9.6, tied for 94th. 125th in yards per reception, Juju Smith-Schuster at 6.1. Okay, yak per reception. So, hey, if you're not getting down the field and separating that way, can you do something after the catch? Demario Douglas, again, good, tied for 14th, 5.8. Kendrick Bourne, tied for 47th, 4.5, not bad. Gasecki tied for 66th, 3.8. Devontae Parker, 2.3, tied for 81st. Tied for 108th is Juju at 2.4. Tied for 121st is Hunter Henry at 1.8. So basically what this stuff tells you, what this information tells you, and what the statistics have told you this season is a six-round draft pick is the Patriots' most explosive playmaker. That's your most explosive guy. So you're banking on a six-round pick. You need a six-round pick to produce. And like we said, he's in concussion protocol right now because the rest of these guys haven't produced. Henry, not a separator. Parker, not a separator. Gasecki not a separator. All these guys that you brought into the organization and you had a tool that was there for you to use and you're not using it if you're the Patriots. It's just that really irked me as a Patriots fan realizing Hey, they haven't been doing this thing well for so long, yet they're ignoring an advantage or at least a tool that they could actually incorporate. From the article, they never made a concerted effort to get true separators at wide receiver who can win one-on-one. An AFC pro scout added, there have been a lot of misses there in the evaluation process, in my opinion. I agree with that AFC scout. And the thing that irks you about this is this is a scout in the NFL that is telling Callahan and Doug Hyde, yeah, uh, guys, essentially what he's saying is we knew the guys that they signed couldn't separate. That's why my team didn't have interest in these guys. Like this AFC scout is basically his evaluation is they go after these guys that can't separate. And this is sort of the aggravating part of this whole situation with the Patriots is there are things available that can help you. Like not everybody's perfect. Bill is not good at drafting receivers. Bill is not good at signing free free agent receivers. And what we're finding out is there's ways that he could be better and he just doesn't use them. That's lazy. That's malpractice. Okay. So another, so that's the first thing as the metric man, you can imagine not using analytics, not using the tracking data. That shit pisses me off when it's available all over the NFL, the Patriots, according to the article by Callahan and Doug Kide, obviously really good reporters. Callahan had the great write up last year too, with the dysfunction of the Patricia situation and all that. These guys are really good. They're really dialed into the team. And they put this in the article. The Patriots are not using this stuff. That really irks me. Okay. Another thing that jumped out to me from the article. Quote, we know Mac isn't going to win for us. He needs to be comfortable. A team source told the Herald this summer. But we think we can win with them. We'll see. That's the explanation that we get here. We'll see. But we think we can win with them. We'll see. Eh, no big deal. No big deal. We'll see if we can win with this guy. So first of all, Basically, a source in the organization is telling the Herald that Mac cannot carry the franchise. That's the first thing. He's never going to be a franchise carrier, right? And we all knew this, but most of us believe that already. That's why I was shouting about this whole offseason about going after Lamar. I did a full pod 
on why the Patriots should go after Lamar, right? Because Lamar actually can carry a franchise. Lamar can actually elevate a roster, right? And the Patriots roster is not good enough to just have an average quarterback like Mac Jones. And obviously this year, he's one of the worst quarterbacks in the NFL, but he's an average level guy at best. The opposite of a guy like Lamar, Pat Mahomes, Justin Herbert. So in that case, you need to have a loaded roster for Mac to have success, right? So in other words, the Patriots thought, hey, you know what? Our roster can actually pick up Mac Jones, right? Because basically what you have is a team source saying, we know Mac can't carry the team. So if that's the case, their prediction, their projection, if you will, is the roster can pick up Mac and you can be successful with a limited quarterback with this Patriots roster. And I would say to that, based on what? Why did they think this would work with Mac Jones if this is the roster? The weapons were not good. You had no alpha in terms of the receiving core, right? We talked about that the other day with Doug. Why not go after a guy like DeAndre Hopkins? You refused to sign him. You could have obviously paid more than the Titans. You didn't do that. And you went bargain basement shopping again, right? So it would be one thing if they were the 49ers in terms of their weapons. It would be one thing if they were the Buccaneers in terms of their weapons, even like with Godwin and Evans. Like those guys are really good players, right? That's the scariest part to me is they actually thought that this is a person within the organization acknowledging that Mac can't carry it. But the thought process within the organization is the guys around Mac will be able to win. That to me is maybe even scarier than what the person in the franchise is saying about Mac Jones. Like you actually thought this would work. And here's another juicy detail on Mac. Some see him as immature in the face of adversity. One source said, even using the word bratty, <laughs> which that kind of checks out, right? Based on the antics we saw in the field from Mac last year when he's jumping up and down, complaining about the play calls and all that different type of stuff. Remember, he said RPOs are cool at a press conference, which again is calling out the coaching staff. Even if I think they should be incorporating more RPOs, Mac Jones saying that at a press conference last year, that's not how you handle that. Mac Jones saying he thrives in play action. That's not something you say because again, that's calling out the coaching staff. And Mac last year calling Alabama, calling the coaching staff, remember that report to try to figure out what they could do better with the offense. You didn't think that was going to get back to Bill. So I can totally understand why people within the organization think Mac is immature for the way that he's handled himself on the field and off the field. I mean, he's had some bad press conferences as well. And how about this? A team source set of Jones. There's definitely hope that he'll improve, but I don't think there's a ton of confidence that he will. To be clear, I don't think there's doubt either. More just neutral expectations with a degree of hopefulness. What the fuck does that mean? This is a team source and he's saying, yeah, maybe he'll improve, but we don't want to bet on him improving, right? This is your quarterback, not your long snapper. This isn't a lefty reliever. This is your quarterback. Eh, we'll see. To be clear, I don't think there's doubt either, but I don't think there's a ton of confidence that he will. I mean, this is unbelievable. Again, why weren't you calling up the Ravens about Lamar in the offseason? Anyway. So this was about Mac and Bill, the article, right? And sort of it paints a picture of, hey, who deserves the most blame? Is it Bill or is it Mac? To me, and I'm not defending Mac because I've told you on multiple occasions that Mac isn't the guy long-term, this looks way worse for Bill to me. Like this article, it makes Bill look way worse than Mac Jones. And I love this in regards to Mac starting this week. Quote, before Bill Belichick announced his decision, members across the organization doubted Jones would get another shot. How can he? One source asked Monday afternoon. 
<laughs> so this is Monday. Somebody within the organization saying, how could you possibly start Mac this week? Unreal. And the only reason that Mac is starting is because of how bad Bailey Zappi has been. We talked to Doug Kite about this on the Tuesday pod. Zappi has been horrible. One source said it's Zappi's offseason. It was a rough transition to the new offense. Another source said Zappi's performance in training camp in the preseason wasn't good enough on multiple levels. A third said it stunk. So <laughs> Mac Jones has been so bad. They have a backup quarterback they can't play because they think he's going to be worse. Think about the position the Patriots are in right now. They actually believe, and it seems like they're right in this based on everybody that was watching Zappi in training camp and based on what I've seen during the season and in the preseason, it could only get worse with Bailey Zappi, which is amazing because Mac Jones has been unequivocally one of the bottom three quarterbacks in the NFL. So all this has led to the Patriots offense. They have the most drives in the NFL because of their turnovers. First in drives with 62, yet they're 23rd in yards. They are tied for last in touchdowns. They're tied for last in field goals. They're last in points. They are last in total points, not per game, in total points. And the Seahawks, the Chargers, the Bucks, and the Browns all had bye weeks last week. And the Patriots are still last in points. The Patriots have 10 turnovers, and they have 10 scoring drives. Think about how crazy that is. And now, for the second time in less than a year, you have people in the organization talking about Bill's miscues, right? It's embarrassing. This what it feels like to me right now, and I hate to say this because he brought us six Super Bowls along with Tom Brady. This feels like Phil Jackson running the Knicks front office, like didn't show up to the combine, falling asleep. Like Bill could have gotten better at this job, but he refused to embrace new technology, analytics, and tracking data. And now we're in this situation with Mac Jones. I just think it's amazing that we have, we'll see. We're not sure if it will work. We're not confident, but we're, we're hopeful. I mean, this is unbelievable. They acknowledged that they didn't think Mac could carry the franchise, yet they thought with the receiving core of Juju Smith-Schuster, Kendrick Bourne, Hunter Henry, Mike Gusecki, that this this offense is going to work. Yeah, it's been great. And not to mention the banged-up offensive line, which Doug and Callahan talk about in the article as well. Not even just the banged-up offensive line, just the bad offensive line. All right, anyway, so I needed to... Get into that article first. And by the way, like I said at the top, go ahead and check that out at the Herald. Great stuff by Doug and great stuff by Callahan on sort of how we got to this point with not just Mac, but with Bill Belichick as well. All right, let's talk about something positive. Brian Rob from Mass Live will join us. Next, we'll chat C's. Snap into action this NFL season with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, new customers can get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. That's $200 in bonus bets, win or lose. And I'm looking at this for Sunday, a five-leg parlay, all money line and all favorites. So it comes out to plus 214, though. So you have San Francisco to beat the Browns in Cleveland. I like that Cleveland team, but San Francisco right now, the best team of the NFL. I like the Jaguars to beat the Colts at home, despite the fact that Gardner Minshew's coming back for revenge. I still like the Jags in that game. Of course, Anthony Richardson dealing with the injury. I like the Dolphins to beat the Panthers at home. The Panthers are the worst team of the NFL. That's not named the Patriots. The Bills to beat the Giants at home. And then the Rams to beat the Cardinals at home. So that's a five-leg parlay, all favorites, plus 214. If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there's no better time to get in on the action. The app is so easy to use. There's a wide range of betting options, including spreads, player props, over-unders, and more. And FanDuel is now live in Kentucky. Download the app and take advantage of their great special offers, boosts, and more. So visit FanDuel.com slash Pike and kick off the NFL season.
FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, he covers the Celtics for Mass Live. You also hear him on the Sports Hub, hosts the Winning Plays podcast as well. It is Brian Robb. B-Rob, what's going on, man? How are you? We're almost here. It's coming up quick here. Three preseason games in the books. Uh, honestly, a lot to talk about. And it, the timing can be better when you look at, as I'm sure you know, you look at the Pat season right now. The Celtics can't get here <laughs> soon enough, I think, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm with you, man. Wednesday night, I got the Celtics on one TV and I got the Bruins on another TV. I'm like, okay, this is actually fun. I'm actually enjoying <laughs> watching sports, unlike the Patriots, which has sort of become a chore at this point in time, which I never thought would happen, even without Tom Brady. I never thought it, they'd be this bad, but this is where we are right now. But before we got on, we were talking about this ESPN list, B-Rob. And so I got to get into this because this is a major problem. And you <laughs> wrote about it. Derek White did not make ESPN's top 100 list. I consider myself the president of the Derek White fan club, and at least Kevin Pelton, as you mentioned in your article, he wrote that this was the most glaring omission. You mentioned some of the guys in front of him, Colin Sexton, Russell Westbrook, Jordan Poole, and even former Celtics like Grant Williams, number 97. And I think Grant actually is a top 100 player in the league and will be again this year. But I don't know how anybody could have all these guys on the Celtics over Derek White, who was unequivocally the Celtics' third best player last year, you could make an argument from an impact perspective. He could even be the second best Celtic based on what he did last year. So we didn't have to go through the numbers, but he did have another block in that preseason game last night or Wednesday night, I should say, where we know the 76 blocks. He led all guards and blocks last season. I thought he looked really good in that preseason game on Wednesday night. But I mean, B-Rob, what do we do about this? I mean, I'm actually, I'm legitimately offended by this like this <laughs> this is more offensive than the Patriots brand of football right now the ringer at the end of last season had him 68th in the NBA and I even thought okay maybe he'd be higher than this but 68 that seems fair this guy made an all defensive team last year and he's not even in the top 100 by ESPN I don't know did they just like not watch the Celtics and I think some of these people maybe didn't watch the Celtics which is tough to do because they play so many nationally televised games because how could everybody have all these other Celtics on this list over Derek White? He was better than Smart last year. He was better than Grant last year. He was definitely better than Rob last year, who barely played. But some of these other guys, like Colin Sexton, give me a break. I don't, I don't know what you're watching, Brian. He clearly took a step back last year. That was a step back <laughs> in his career. Um, he was coming off the bench a lot of the time. It, that, it just didn't work out. The Celtics obviously, you know, choked in that game. No, it's it's a travesty, is what it is. And um, yeah, the names you mentioned. And I mean, just just look at what the Celtics did this off. If you want any better example of like how good the team thinks Derek White is and how well like you we, and me and you've been talking about this going back to last year throughout the season. Be like, why isn't Derek White playing more? Why isn't he on the fourth end of the games? The front office traded away Marcus Smart and Malcolm Brogdon to a degree to clear the way for Derek White to say, like, <laughs> guess what? Like we we know this is a tough decision to like benchmark a smart or benchmark a Brogdon in these moments. You know, we're going to trade him. We're going to make things easier because we know Derek White is our guy in those moments, not just for the defense, but offensively, to your point, like he was probably the second best player in the postseason run for this team, like from a consistency standpoint. So if anything, he's someone who should probably be, you know, teetering on like a top 50 NBA player at this point, based on what you're expecting from him this year. And um, yeah, it's just, it's kind of complicated. You just go list through the list of names of like who's on here and you're like, 
any you talk to any executive scout around the league be like would you trade Derek white for player x and it would be uh a clear-cut yes yeah i don't put a ton of credence into it just because the top 10 was out on thursday morning and number one on the list was not Jokic, who just had one of the most dominant postseason runs we've seen in recent history and they had Giannis in front of him which okay if this is two three years ago maybe but Jokic just proved he could do it at the highest level just so this list to me was ridiculous to begin with, although I did like Tatum being in the top 10, and I don't know how you would argue with Tatum not being in the top 10, and he was ahead of Kevin Durant, so I was fine with that portion of it. But I did want to get to, so the starting lineup, everybody talks about the starting lineup. I don't think it's as big of a deal as everybody else does, but I understand why there's a debate here, right? So now obviously in the game on Wednesday night, you don't have Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, so it looks a little bit different, but that first game on Sunday, no Drew Holiday. Al Horford starts. Then Holiday played over eight minutes in the second quarter of that first game. He started with Jalen, and then it was him, Tatum, out there with Hauser, Pritchard, and I believe Porzingis came back in. Now, I don't love the idea of Al and Porzingis on the court together just because I think you're naturally going to play slower that way, but I do understand the idea of, well, at the beginning of games, that's when the team is going to be at its biggest, the opposition. So I do understand that Maybe Al wants to start, like maybe that's part of like Al doesn't like to come off the bench. I don't know, but maybe that's part of the calculus there too. But I look at last year, one of the cases I think you could make for Drew coming off the bench, and like I said, I rather Drew start, and I know nothing is set in stone yet, but one of the things you could look at is in the non in the Tatum minutes with Jalen on the court, or I should say first, let's do Tatum without Jalen, 122.4 offensive rating. Okay. The Kings led the league at 118.6. So we know like the Tate, yeah, the Tatum minutes without Jalen, it doesn't really matter who you put out there with Jason Tatum. He's going to generate good offense. Jalen, no Tatum, 113.7. That's basically the Washington Wizards offense last year, 22nd in the NBA. So maybe the idea is here, Jalen on the court with your best playmaker in Drew Holiday in sort of that stint when Tatum sits. I mean, maybe that's part of what they're looking at, too. And like I said, not that this is finalized or anything along those lines, but I do wonder if they really want to sort of match Jalen and Drew Holiday, if that's sort of the idea here. Yeah, I think you nailed it. And it's a I think there, there's a good case can be made for it just based on those numbers that you laid out right there. I think that that perfectly encapsulates like, OK, we need. How do we survive Nate? And it's not just last year for the non minutes. It's like throughout his career. Yeah. Like his plus minus has been dominant even since his rookie year. So it's like, okay, how do we survive that? And Drew Holiday and Jalen Brown together, that's a pretty good option to survive that against second units. I guess the, so like when you, when you come in here, you trade for Drew Holiday. I, I mean, this will be a tribute credit to him to being like, the assumptions like, okay, they want to, they've talked a lot about starting double big all year. That's not a huge surprise that they stick with that even after trading Rob Williams, because for the reasons like you mentioned, just it's a bit, it's easier to start the beginning of games. Um, if you feel good enough about your, you know, Luke Cornette and your backup bigs, like you can get away with that. But in my mind, I was like, I never put too much stock into Drew Holiday coming off the bench. It's like, it's Drew Holiday. He's an all-star last year. You're going to yeah. come in to the new team. Like, <laughs> Hey, by the way, bye. you're going to be a six man. now. I hope that's okay. As you enter your contract, you're here. But maybe he is fine with it. Maybe. I mean, Drew Holiday obviously was one teammate of the year award in the NBA for a couple of years in the last five or six. And if he's good of it, then and you're not ruffling feathers there, then that's fine. But I I always thought that it would be Derek White going to the bench over Drew Holiday in the situation they start double big. But clearly that's both of these options are in play right now. And we'll probably see a lot, read a lot more into it next week, depending on what lineups we come out in those next two games. Yeah, I would be 
I would have Horford on the bench and start with the two guards, which I think that's going to be your closing lineup. The two guards, obviously yeah. the two wings that you have. And you would think that most nights it's going to be Porzingis, but certain matchups, I think it's going to be Al over Porzingis, especially if it's like, oh, you're playing that guy in Milwaukee, Giannis. You may want Al on the court rather than Porzingis. So I think that's going to be the closing lineup. I would prefer to just start that group with Drew, but I can kind of, I can kind of understand that. And the reason I think maybe they don't want to put Derek White on the bench to start games is just the fact that we've heard like to your point about like hey we're willing to trade Marcus Smart and I I can't remember who said this but didn't he go like Sam Cassell went out to visit him in Colorado telling him like what it's like to be the starting point guard like the yeah. franchise point was guard it of the team. in July that he was yeah. the starting guard. it was an announcement you're right <laughs> <laughs> like like what, nobody asked him about it, it was just like wasn't it the uh Jalen extension yeah we were at the conference yeah yeah, yeah. We were just, he, it was like a, an after the press conference just a, like you know Sometimes you get guys for five minutes after those just talk about other stuff. And here's like, hey, what's the deal with point guard? He's like, oh, yeah, Derek's a new starting point guard. And we're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess I'm guessing that's why they don't want to put Derek White on the bench either. So, look, I understand. Like, it's not all like, hey, we know what our best lineup is. Like, sometimes you have to placate to certain players on your team. So I can understand that. And if Holiday is willing to come off the bench, okay. I am excited, though, like the non-Tatum minutes, as I was mentioning. So I was looking at some of this. So... If you look at Drew with a traditional wing in Middleton without Giannis on the court, the past three years, it's over 1,200 minutes. With Giannis on the bench, these two guys had a 119 offensive rating together. And this is when Drew Holiday's taking on the playmaking duties, and Chris Middleton is the finisher in those lineups, sort of like what Jalen would be with Tatum on the bench. The other thing I looked at is Porzingis with a scoring wing. So with Kyle Kuzma, who is very similar to Jalen in the sense that he can't pass. Obviously, Jalen's the far superior player, but if you look at Kuzma— Never going to tally up any assists. So 1,374 minutes over the past two years with Kuzma and Porzingis on the court, a 117.2 offensive rating. And only two teams were north of that last year, the Kings and the Celtics. So I think, and one of the things that jumped out to me in the first game is how they were using Porzingis as sort of like an off-the-ball screener for Jalen. Jalen was coming off those pin downs. One time he found Porzingis wide open for a jumper. One time he went right into the lane. So I do think like... These guys are really equipped to play with Jalen. And the thing that jumped out to me specifically with Porzingis on the court with Jalen is just how much easier he made life for Jalen. Like the reads just were so easy. It really will. And Jalen is, you know, throughout his career has been a tough shot maker from that mid range, I feel like. And that's, you know, and when it when it's going for him, it's like an impossible to defend him at that point. Those shots for him should not go away entirely, but like he's just not going to need to go. To, it's, it's not going to be that hard for him to your point. Like, the amount of space he should get here. And, and this is, you know, the offense in that first game specifically was like clunky at times. Um, but you can already see like they're creating wide open looks. And once they figure out like each other's tendencies, like where they want the ball, where defenses are laying off, once they like able to dissect the film more in that front, like everyone is like a wide open shot every time down the floor is not like a, you know, a leap of fear. That's like should be realistic for this group when they have these guys out there together. And so um Porzingis, Holiday, like Jalen, like he's never obviously played with talent that good on a second unit. And when with Tatum out, I'm guessing like at least two of those guys are going to be on the floor at all times, maybe all three um, to really balance things out. And that's just going to make life easier because as we've seen in the past, like Tatum, Tatum and four bench guys has can be a very good unit. Like that yeah. we've seen that for years now. And so if they knowing that, like, and you can 
you know, get away with that for five or six minutes a half, then that way you have three potential all-stars on the floor at all times for those other 36 minutes of the game, which is tremendous. Yeah. And you have the shooting, right? Like, because even the numbers with Marcus and Jalen on the court last year without Tatum were not great. So now you have the shooting of Drew Holiday to go into that element too, which I think is just a huge thing. So I was just the the biggest thing that's jumped out to me in the preseason, besides Pritchard just being maybe one of the best players in the entire NBA. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what does agents think right now? Are his agents like banging the tail, being like, "Ah, we should have waited one more week to talk." (laughs) You know, I was thinking about that when he signed it because I'm like, he's going to play a lot of minutes. I I mean, what do you think? He's probably going to like if you think about it. The Celtics had what I think seven guys last year that played 25 minutes per night, or maybe yeah, I think it was seven because Rob was like right under 25. If you think about it, you took out you Grant, you took out Rob, and you took out Marcus. Now, you did add Drew Holiday and Porzingis, but there's that one other guy that's going to get major minutes, and that's going to be Pritchard. So to your point, I, I actually think you're right on that. Like, I think that the agent, and look, the, the guy wants to get paid, he wants to be happy and all that, but I actually think there would have been more of a market for him next offseason, especially, I, I know it's cliche to say this, but the cap's going up in the NBA like, and that's why I thought that was a really important contract for the Celtics to have a guy under a reasonable contract going forward because this team gets expensive when Jalen's contract kicks in, Porzingis is extended, you hope Drew gets a deal done, Derek White gets a deal done, Tatum Supermax is coming. I actually, like, and he's shooting the shit out of the ball. He's 13 to 31 in the preseason. It's been phenomenal. It really has been. And, um, but we, we did, we did talk to Richard about this and asked him kind of directly, like what, and you like how involved were you in negotiations? I think it was my um writer, Mass Life Switchy, Trot asked this. And Pritchard just straight up admitted, like, listen, like I stayed out of that. Like they just got to a number I was comfortable with. And he was clearly a guy, he just wanted that long-term security. He didn't yeah. want he did not want to have the contract year burden on him, which makes sense when you look at what his last couple of years have been like. And you know, he's not an lottery pick. He's a six foot, you know, three guard, two guard that is past thirty million dollars. So it's not like he's doing bad for himself here, but clearly there was more potential upside they have. And it's a huge bargain for the Celtics at this price because this is not going to be a bad contract, I think. And no matter, like, it'll be maybe a mediocre contract at worst, but at this point, like, it's already going to look like a bargain at the start of next season. And that's huge for this team with their payment, you know, with their salary limitations going forward. Yeah, I think he's going to have a big year. I'm I'm not saying, like, he's going to average 20 points a game or anything like he's averaging in the preseason, but he can shoot off movement too. He can push the pace offensively. Him and Tatum have always played really well together, so I'm excited to see what he does this year. So I do. So the Porzingis thing, there was a stretch, three possession stretch on Wednesday. Rolls gets a lob from Derek White, then he blocks Reed at the rim at the other end, and then he hits a top of the key three. I'm just like, th- this guy can bring so much to the offense. And then playing with the two bigs, I was wondering like, hey, what's this going to look like offensively? So... There was a play on Wednesday night where it stuck out to me. I had to go back and watch it again. Like I took a video of it to see like, okay, is this really what they were doing? So basically Drew's out there on the right wing. They have two screens and it's Porzingis and it's Derek White. Derek White actually fakes like he's going to screen. He runs to the right corner. So then Drew Holiday comes off the Porzingis screen. He drives to his left. And as that's happening, Al runs out to the other corner. So Al's spacing in the left corner, you have Derek White, who's already taken his defender, the help defender, to the right corner. Porzingis actually, like, kind of rolled. It was slow, but he could have just, if he wanted to, popped back out and took a three. And then Al, you have to make a decision because Al last year, 63 of 129 on corner threes, 48.8%, 95th percentile. So Tobias Harris is kind of caught there. 
And he decides like, okay, I'm going to help, but it's too late. So Holiday gets a layup out of it. So I do think like this is something you can really take advantage of, especially if like the traditional big is going to cover Al. I guess it really doesn't matter. But whoever's covering Al, like Al doesn't have to be the screener. This is a way that you can take sort of some energy, not take energy off the table for Al, where he doesn't have to expend it is... Al in the corner is like a legit weapon and it takes the shot blocker. In the case of last night, it was Harris, but it could take a shot blocker out of the lane as well. I just feel like I really, I loved the Porzingis deal when it happened. And then, you know, we all got caught up in the Drew Holiday part of it, right? Like that was the big news story, but I'm amazed with how they've already used Porzingis and how much he's going to be able to open up for this offense. I think like, obviously Holiday is going to be a huge impact player for this team, but I think we could at the end of the season come away saying Porzingis is the third best player on the team. Now in the postseason, you need Drew's defense and all that, but I think Porzingis is, everybody's like worried about like, is he going to be okay with not getting shots? The guy came here where he could have been a free agent. He opted into the contract to come to the Celtics. I think this is all going to work out really well for him. And it seems like two years ago, like I was reading that he changed sort of his training habits and he was healthier last year. So maybe that Maybe he's going to be healthy, and it doesn't seem like he has the foot issue right now, which is a big thing. So, man, I'm just I'm really excited about the signing. Sorry, I didn't I didn't mean to ramble on forever about him, but I was just like, no. holy <laughs> shit, when I saw him on the court. No, I think I mean you're kind of laying. I think this front office has had their eye on him for a while on that front, and they saw this, you know, the redemption season last year in Washington, if you will, when you know he was pretty much a giveaway by Dallas when they traded him there. Um, but to your point the rhetoric for him is something that's caught my eye the most, like even in this summer and at the start of the season, like he's all in on me. Like, listen, I'm at a stage in my career now. Like I want to win. Like, I'm not like going to be hunting shots. I don't need to like establish himself. They gave him that big contract. So he doesn't have to worry about that. And that's kind of been a Brad Stevens MO right now over the last couple of years. You look around, like he takes care of pretty much everyone. Like he, there's no one who's entering this year. It, like that's going to be a pivotal rotation player in a contract year it, outside of Drew Holiday, who they can't technically negotiate with yet. But if you want to bet, I'd bet if Drew Holiday is coming off the bench, you, you can, you can bet on that extension coming around in, uh, in March <laughs> here uh, to keep him happy there. But it is, it's like, if you have Porzingis bought in to what this team needs him to do, along with the fact that he's clearly playing with the best talent of his career uh, from an offensive standpoint, by far, um, if he's willing to give himself up, he's going to get great looks all season long going to be able to get the easiest buckets of his career all season long. And that is going to lift this team's offense to probably unprecedented levels um, compared to last year. Yeah, I'm excited. And the other thing I'm excited about is Joe Missoula. I called him on my pod on Sunday, pliable Joe, like he's making some changes and I gave him credit. <laughs> like he had that whole back and forth where he's talking about like, Oh, sometimes post-ups are good. Sometimes you have to get to the free throw line. It's like, Oh yeah. Like this is stuff that, and they're better off personnel-wise to do that this year as well. And then the other thing that stuck out to me, you mentioned this in one of your articles, he yanked Banton after like, what, yeah. like 20 seconds in a quarter because he was unhappy with something. And I go back to the first preseason game, something he did too, is at the end of the quarter, he took Porzingis out with like 10 seconds left, put Al back on the court so they could switch everything at the end of the quarter, which I thought, oh, this is really smart. He's like coaching right now. Like it's actual regular season games, which I think is good for him, right? I mean, we sometimes can forget, maybe not you, but I can forget like this is this guy's second year as a head coach and he wasn't preparing all offseason to be a head coach. He was planning to be an assistant until the EMA thing came down. And even like he challenged the Brissett dunk on Sunday, which tells you that he's into the game. 
in the fourth quarter last night. He's screaming at one of the officials. So I do feel like Missoula seems to, I don't want to say like a new attitude, but he's much more comfortable, especially considering you have Cassell and you have Charles Lee to like the NBA GM survey had them both as like two of the best assistant coaches in the NBA. So it does feel like, and maybe this is, hey, he went back and he watched everything from last year and he went back and he calculated his numbers or whatever it is. But I do feel like I have more confidence. Maybe I'm going to regret this when we get to the playoffs, but I have a lot more <laughs> confidence in Joe than I did just a couple of months ago. Yeah, it's the signs are good early on that point. And like they were just last year and you get it like he's an interim head coach for the first half of the year. You, you don't want to step on toes. You, he, you know, never said a bad thing about any player in the roster at all. Like, like, I don't think he pulled anyone like he did with Banton all year long. Like, um, so that sort of stuff, you know, like, I think we're seeing his true colors now. I think he's, like you said, he's getting comfortable looking at it. I'm still have to withhold, like, I think the biggest thing for him now, the, the lineup choices are going to be made, I think, far easier for him mm-hmm. just based on the personnel they have. But he needs that stuff where he needs to show real growth in compared to last year, both in like minutes management. So you don't wear out a guy like Al Horford. Um, you don't, you know, wear down Tatum and Brown too much. Um, yeah. And also just, you know, figuring out, okay, who's, who has a hot hand with it in this game? We have six guys we could potentially close with. Who's going to be the five for that night? Um, who's going to be the spark plug off the bench on a certain night? Like that's the type of stuff that we didn't see much of last year, but I'm keeping a close eye now. Cause if, if that comes, if they can add that to the equation, then with him, if he can show that kind of growth, then this team's ceiling, you know, on a night to night basis, it gets even higher. Yeah, and I don't mean to take shots at anybody in particular, but now that you bring it up, not having Marcus on the team, it would have been, and I criticized him a ton last year for not having Derek White closing games, but I think that would have been a really difficult thing to do every game. Like, yeah. like hey, oh, yeah. you're Marcus, you're out of here. Like, imagine if you took Marcus out of a game. So I think that was maybe part of his long-term plan where it's like, okay, but when I get to the playoffs, I got to make sure I make the right decisions. And I feel like, he needed to address that earlier than he did. This year, Smart's not on the team. So I do think that, to your point about the roster, it makes that easier. I am interested when it comes to Hauser because he had a couple of tough games, two of nine from deep, oh of six from deep, and then he went four of nine on Wednesday night. And one of the things that stuck out to me about him last year is he started off the season so hot and we were like, or I shouldn't say we, but I was retroactively getting mad at email. Like, why didn't you trap this guy in the finals or against Miami <laughs> when you couldn't shoot, right? Like, wh- wh- why wasn't this guy in the court? But October through November, 47.9%. December through January, 29.5%. So a massive dip. And then he got back together February through the end of the regular season, 45%. And then in the playoffs, didn't really have it from a shooting perspective. It was really bizarre going back to the rotation that Grant wasn't in the rotation and he was. But I do look at Mikhail Luke, who they brought in, who three of seven from deep the other night. He had a nice put bat dunk as well. I think he has a little bit more on ball juice than Hauser can. Not that Hauser has any on ball juice, but Mikhail Luke <laughs> can actually, you know, put the ball on the floor and dribble yeah, he can a little run a pick bit. And roll. So, yeah, he can run a pick and roll. So, do you think that Mikhail Luke could take minutes away from Hauser? Now, if Hauser's hitting his threes and he's shooting north of 40%, you're going to want that guy in the lineup. But it, it does feel interesting to me that Mikhail Luke does similar things to him in terms of that's a, the profile is, hey, he's a legitimate shooter, even though his three-point numbers career-wise have not been great. Last year, they were pretty good. I do think maybe this is sort of Hauser insurance because as great as his shot can look at sometimes, he is kind of streaky. Yeah. I mean, I honestly think you know it. Like it is, you can't have enough shooting at size on the roster, especially since at the wing, like if 
if anyone goes down in your top six, like things could technically get pretty thin in the hurry if you're relying on, you know, Lamar Stevens and O'Shea Brissett for like heavy minutes at the at the three or the four. So Mihaluk is a guy who I think does show like he's played for six teams, which is kind of wild in like six years. <laughs> but then it seemed for whatever reason, like in Charlotte in the second half of last year on a team like that no one cared about, no one was watching, like he kind of put things together like offensively for himself he was a lot more consistent um the three-point shot obviously was a lot more consistent and now this translates again to a team where it's like he's clearly going to get the best looks of his career when he's whenever he's out on the floor like and they're not going to ask him to do too much so it's like if he's someone who's seasoned enough where he knows to pick his spots and he wasn't in that top 10 top 11 that first preseason game so that kind of like you know you don't reach much in that but that kind of shows like a little hint of being like okay he's not on the the fringe of the rotation just yet but with this performance through the first last couple of games there if this continues next week this could be like a, a javante green situation of a couple of years ago where it's a guy who you think is like oh is he even going to make the roster to a guy like oh maybe he might actually play some nights and it's he's shown enough tri- intrigue where you have to wonder about that yeah i was kind of surprised by the ball handling like i didn't really know that he had that part of his game which i think is Definitely something that he brings more than Hauser. And I like Hauser as a player. It's just, I mean, for two months, the guy couldn't shoot the three ball last right. year. And that's kind of what he does. So he's going to be more consistent when it comes to that. And I'm saying that as a guy that for two months shot 45%, another two months he shot 46%. So it's just kind of weird when he's south of 30%. And that's when like the whole team, ironically, besides Grant, everybody was shooting poorly for like that. those two. Remember when they cooled down for a while, like the all-time great offense cooled down? Nobody could shoot whatsoever so speaking of the wing line you mentioned Brissett you mentioned Stevens Jordan Walsh hasn't really got a ton of burn he had that one nice play in the second game where he had a steal on one end and dunked it on the other end but even in the game Wednesday night he didn't come in until later on in that game so what do you think sort of the pecking order is there it feels like they like Brissett the most out of that group and then Stevens do you think Walsh is gonna start the season in Maine I do I think we're gonna see a lot of I mean Hulk He'll dress for the Celtics game, so he'll be there for depth. You know, you'll see him in blowouts. But um, my guess is they, you know, he's obviously very young, and they want to get him a lot of run in Maine and build up, build him up offensively. Um, and I think it's clear now when you look at this pecking order, like, you know, it's not guaranteed that Stevens makes the team, but he's shown a lot here. But And if you have Stevens on this team, if he makes it, then, yeah, like there's there's just no route for Walsh for right now because it's they're probably close to equivalent three point years at this point. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, I mean, it's too bad because Walsh was a really fun to watch in summer league. Like there's obviously some, some promise there, but um, I think the team is wants him to develop more and he can probably do that better than Maine than sitting at the end of the bench. Yeah. He can get actual reps rather than right. on this team. He's probably not. So I like Brissett too. And I'm biased because he went to Syracuse, but I know he can't shoot, but he's an athletic guy that can defend a bit. So I'm, I would, I like that signing when it happened, especially since you're paying him nothing. But that one makes a lot of sense to me. I hope that Walsh has a role by the end of the season because it's just so enticing. Like the over seven foot wingspan, he can cover smaller guys. It's just he's got to develop that shot. And maybe to your point, like, you know, we see this like with minor league baseball players or major league players and they're like making their rehab stuff. They're just like. Hey, well, how did this guy give up five runs? Well, he was just throwing fastballs or he's just working on a slider. I feel like <laughs> Walsh, should, Walsh should just go down there and be like, work on his screening because you can use him as a screener. And the other thing is, hey, man, go in the corner for like the next five possessions and let's get him some 
open threes. Like that's what I want to see develop from Walsh because if he can just develop a three, he's like the perfect supporting player because of the defense. Like he's already going to be a good defender in the NBA. It's just a part of, you can't really, it's tough to play him when he can't, like the shot is not great right now. And I'm not saying it's broken, but that's something obviously that he needs to work on. So I wanted to ask you about Tatum because he was voted the best small forward by the GM survey by a wide margin, 47%, which is 27 percentage points clear of Durant. I think all defense is in his sights this year. I actually think a double-double is possible. He averaged 8.8 rebounds per game. You take Rob out of the equation. And I was looking at this like the small forwards, the recent great small forwards in the NBA. LeBron has never averaged 8.8. Durant has never averaged 8.8. And Kawhi has never averaged 8.8. Like 8 point, that is a high number. And if you look at his postseason, twice he's averaged more than 10 rebounds per game. Durant never did that, Kawhi never did it, and LeBron has done it twice. So I think that's sort of his underrated skill. The thing that I would like to see is the three-point shot to normalize because he's put on weight, he looks bigger, and he got to the free throw line north of eight times per game. That's really good. That was ninth in the NBA. But 35.3%, 35% the past two seasons. Now, one of the things I was looking at, 4.8 pull-up threes per game last year, the ninth most. I think he can cut that number down, especially with the weapons they have. And he only shot 29.1%. The catch and shoot numbers, 4.2, that was 40.5%. So his catch and shoot threes were still good. So my hope is that he cuts down on the pull-up threes. And I think you can naturally with the players that are surrounding you, right? Like it's, it's, are you going to blitz Tatum on a pick and roll at the top of the key now? Like, I don't know if that's your best strategy, right? You have guys that you have surrounding shooters and we've seen Porzingis can make plays off the roll as well. Not to say that he's like the best playmaker or anything along those lines but my hope is at least 38 percent I'm not saying 40 percent but he can can he get back to 38 percent because I don't think there's a reason he shouldn't be able to like he's too good of a shooter to be shooting 35 percent from deep 100 percent and I do like you know like the the level of difficulty for the shots he's taking this year should go down a lot and a lot of it would be end of shot clock type stuff it's like all right you have the ball at the end of the clock you're just gonna you know dribble into the ground and try to up into something as opposed to driving into a crowd now this year two factors there a the offense should be better where you, those spots should be fewer and far between and b when you're picking between driving and shooting now the floor should be spaced a lot more now when you have holiday Horford, jalen brown like the the crowd is not there anymore like it's a one-on-one like he can go to the hoop now with that and then drive and kick from that point so i think those type of decisions should become easier for him it should help the three-point um, shooting percent country back up. You do wonder, again, like, the risk situation with the shooting. Like, hopefully, again, he clearly turned down surgery. You wonder if that plays any part into those numbers the last couple of years. But, like, as you pointed out, the catch-and-shoot numbers are so good where you're like, okay, if you just get this guy, if he's just taking wide-open threes as opposed to pull-up threes that are contested, like, it should take care of itself. What did he say? Like, how many specialists did he see about his wrist? It was like multiple specialists, think, right? Yeah, I think he said like four, like three or four. He said on media day, and then he said like the consensus wasn't surgery. So he probably, who knows what that means? If that like if a couple of them said you don't need it or one, but he clearly, you know, he's had wrist issues for a while and has yeah. you know just been able to manage it. And it's been fine. Like he, obviously, you can't argue with he was NBA All First Team last year, so it's like he's clearly making it work. Yeah, well, it wasn't affecting him deadlifting this summer. Guys, deadlifting no. 495 right. pounds. And you wrote that he he said he gained 12 pounds. And you can, like, he looks it, man. He he looks big. He does. 
And again, that should bode well in terms of like, if you're going to the hoop when it's just one on one there, you should be able to power through some more guys now if you're adding on that bulk um, around the basket there. So it's for that, for the rebounding, like you mentioned, that is, that's a crazy number. There's 8.8. Like Porzingis will steal some boards. Al Horford probably won't from him, but yeah. um, that's kind of been a sneaky. If you want to be all defensive team, putting up big defensive rebounding numbers is going to help. On that front, and so that, Cornette uh, certainly will not take any rebounds no. away. <laughs> no, he he does not rebound, man. Like all the no. numbers with him on the court are great, but like there was a point in the game on Wednesday night. I'm like, the ball's right in front of you. Just go get it. Well, I don't know what's up. He with boxes that. out. He's a yeah, box he, out guy. He's not a grab grab the re- not not a grab the rebound type guy. At least on the defensive end. So yeah. So <laughs> if Tate if Tatum plays like a significant amount of minutes with Cornette, he will reach that 10 rebound per game threshold because. And look, I'm not, this is not a critique of Luke Cornetti's, their third big. I just find it weird how there's times where he's just like not going for the rebound. Maybe that's what they tell him is just box out, clear it out for everybody else. But it is weird. The Cornette contest was back though a couple of times in the preseason. We've got him and we've got him, him and Porzingis do it simultaneously on one of these games. And then they'll, we'll see like the, the, the Wolf, Wolf Word Oaks, Wolf Oaks, like that. Yeah. Porzingis did it as well. All right. So Jalen, he mentioned the defense at media day which I almost threw a celebration for that, where he said he's got to be better on that end to paraphrase. It's like, yeah, no shit, Jalen. Like we, we've all noticed, man, you're basically like falling asleep last year when you were off the ball. And and I said this a couple of weeks ago, the most aggravating part about that is we've seen Jalen against Harden in the postseason. He dialed it up. Like when Jalen's concentrated, he can be a great defender, at least on ball. I mean, look at him. He's one of the best athletes in the NBA. So I, I thought that was a positive thing. The other thing, like, there's no reason the Celtics should be almost three points per 100 worse with Jalen on the court defensively than off the court. That just doesn't make any sense. That's obviously an effort thing. Now, the other thing I would say is when you look at him last year, he took 7.2 shots per game less than five feet from the rim, which was 10th in the NBA, hit 68.6%. If you go to post-All-Star break, that number was up to 9.2 attempts. And the percentage stayed the same. So the volume went up significantly. The percentage stayed the same. And he averaged 12.6 points per game within five feet of the basket. For the season, that number was at 9.2. So he's almost up three and a half points per game within five feet. And during that post-All-Star break, only Giannis and Sabonis took more than him within five feet of the basket. Even Shea took less, too. Shea took more twos than anybody in the league last year. So that's my thing with Jalen is I feel like the defense, he made it clear himself. He needs to be better on that. And I think everybody, and I'm sure a lot of people at the Celtics would agree, he's got to be better on that end of the floor. But to me, he's the one guy where in the modern NBA, it's like, hey, man, can you cut down the threes? There's no reason he should be in the top 20 in three-point attempts per game. It's just he's not a good three-point shooter. And unlike Tatum, Tatum has at least proven throughout his career that he can be a good three-point shooter prior to the past two seasons. Jalen's never been consistent. Like, he can get hot, he can get streaky. But I do think, and hopefully now, like going back to the whole thing we're talking about Porzingis, the lanes are going to open up for him. There's going to be more shooting. Like, the Celtics don't have a lot of non-shooters they are going to be playing with Jalen. Like, I don't see a lot of Jalen and Brissett minutes, right? I feel like they're going to make sure to keep shooting around Jalen. So I don't think there's any reason that he should be taking seven threes. Heck, I mean, I don't want to go too crazy. I would like it to be south of five. I don't think he ne- there's enough three-point shooting on this team. I don't think he should be taking many threes. Do you think we see him cut down on the attempts, or is this just like part of him now? No, I think he, I think the, the attempts are going to I wouldn't be surprised just his overall shot attempts go down, period, to a degree. Yeah. But when you with those going down, you'd think that there would be, again, the, like the pull-up threes. Like any, like, you keep him catch and shoot in the corner or in the wings, like those are the ones you want to take him. But like you said, like, 
there's not many more efficient players at the basket in the NBA than Jalen Brown at this point. And he knows that the fact those numbers went up after the all-star break, like you mentioned, made him like a good awareness of that. And now that should be there for him even more all season long, because you don't have Rob Williams taking up space down there. You know, you're he's, I wouldn't be expecting to see him on the floor of Luke Cornett to your point in terms of like bigs that can't shoot. And so that should be Jalen's bread and butter. Like he's, for as much as you want Tim to go down there, like Jalen has proven like he is dominant when he gets ahead of steam, you know, within that five feet range there. So um, if, if anything else, I think Jalen and Jason, like their shot discretion this year is going to be huge for this team because if they still stick with some old bad habits, then that can kind of, you know, be limiting at time for this group in terms of like their shot quality. But if they get rid of those and, find realize that everything is right there for them and from a much easier standpoint with the guys that are around them that could you know go a long way with their you know efficiency numbers especially from the three-point line all right Bira, before we let you go so obviously you have a great team in denver that just won a championship you have milwaukee that just added damian lillard although i think they have some issues in terms of their wing defenders there's not a lot of good wing like jay crowder is not going to stop jason tatum or jalen brown at this particular point in his career and it seems like they're depending on him to do that i love pat Connaughton, local kid he's not doing that either he's not going to slow down jason tatum but outside of health because that's obviously the number one concern i'm not saying the celtics like Milwaukee may end up being better than the Celtics. I actually right now like the Celtics better than Milwaukee. But if there's a question or something holding this team back from winning a championship that isn't health, what do you think it is? I would look at someone like Horford just taking a step back. Hmm. Like he's 37 and at some point you're going to hit the wall. And if he like if the, the bottom shot drops out for him from three-point shooting or just like defensively he can't handle himself there, then things get a little bit tricky for this group because obviously the options on the bench as far as bigs that can shoot are pretty much like slim to none at this point. Um, And we all know Porzingis is a situation where you just have to account for the fact that he's probably going to be off the floor for at least 15 to 20 games this season. So that to me is like, when you look at the variables for this group, that's just a spot where they're, they're vulnerable and they have to be ready for drop. And I do expect them to be able to like address that. Like they have this Grant Williams TPE. They have a bunch of future draft picks. They don't have a lot of salary they can move, but there are some guys that, you know, can be brought in for insurance there. But that's, that's the one thing where it's like you, when you traded Rob, you kind of take away your security blanket from that standpoint in terms of more options there. And you could be vulnerable in that area. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good point. And two, like, now that you're in the second apron, would you have kept Grant? Like, you're already in the second 100%. apron. Yep. Very. That's like, very. That's like good Things insurance. Be, you'd be a lot better about that at this point in terms of the depth if, like, Grant was still on this team. Yeah, I was thinking about it. I may have talked about it on the pod or not. I don't know who's who's going to defend Giannis after Al on this team. I mean, Tatum looks like Superman. Maybe they try Tatum on him. I don't think that'll Honestly, be the case, but. Probably a little bit of him, a little bit of Jalen, a little bit of Drew, maybe. Like, just go Marcus Smart on him. Um, yeah, there's, again, there's no clear-cut answer. And when you have, but then you're like, oh, yeah, put Drew on him. Then, like, okay, who's going to guard Damian Lillard? Yeah. Um, this episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. 
So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Do then when Derek White's on the bench. So that that that's where things get, you know, can be dicey in a hurry when you're, look, you're looking at that juggernaut over there. All right, that is Brian Robb, covers the Celtics for Mass Live. Also hear him on the Sports Hub, hosts the Winning Plays podcast as well. B-Rob, thank you so much for the time, man. Had a ton of fun. And we're almost here, man. Just what, like a week and a half away from the NBA season getting underway. We're ready. Let's do it. Can't wait. Thanks, Brian. Great stuff there from B-Rob. Coming up next, we'll preview the Pats and the Raiders, get into maybe some Tom Brady, some Josh McDaniels. We'll chat with Vic Tafer, who covers the Raiders for The Athletic. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, senior writer at The Athletic, covers the Raiders, Vic Tafer. Vic, thanks so much for taking some time, man. We really appreciate it. I know it isn't the most intriguing matchup in the NFL this week, but a matchup nonetheless. I almost feel bad for Romo and Jim Nance. This is their third game calling the Patriots this year, Vic. Think about that. That's rough. I mean, that's hard to believe. But uh, I guess that's yeah, a great uh, Bill Belichick, Josh McDaniels chess match. Everybody loves those. So I guess there you go. Yeah, I guess that's the thing to look forward to. And Bill's been bad. I know Josh has been bad as well. So I want to start. It's been ugly here for the Pats, as you can imagine. But you had an article up this week, Win Aside, Raiders Must Fix Offense, which is off to a historically bad start. In your article, Vic, you pointed out, I can't believe this. They're the fifth team since 2010 to score fewer than 20 points in their first five games. I was amazed by that stat, especially some of the other teams that were there with them. But you also had the note that in that game, they own, the win that they had uh, against the Packers, they only targeted Devontae Adams three times late in the third quarter. Like it took them, or one time before they targeted him three times right. late in the third quarter there. Aaron Rodgers is even talking about it on the Pack McAfee show that you got to throw him the ball and... This Raiders team, I mean, their offense, the Patriots is worse, but they're scoring on 28% of their drives, 28th. Yards per play, they're 25th. Yards per carry, they're 30th. Josh Jacobs is at 2.9 yards per carry. And the offense is supposed to be Josh's baby. So what's going on with that offense there in Las Vegas, man? It is funny because you mentioned that those five teams that haven't scored 20 points. I didn't mention this in the story because I gave uh, McDaniels a break, but two of them have been a uh, play called by Josh McDaniels. He had the 2011 <laughs> Rams team with his baby. So he has two, <laughs> he has two of those five teams, which is kind of, and again, that Rams team, that roster was, was, was trash, but this one, this year, there's no excuse. You got Josh Jacobs and Devontae Adams. You should be able to score 20 points in the game. I think the problems, uh, the main problems are 
the O-line. Uh, last year, the O-line kind of overachieved last year, so they thought they were okay there. They only made one move. They brought in Greg Van Roten, a veteran guard. They thought he'd be an upgrade over Alex Bars. He has not been. He's been pretty bad. I think the whole line has kind of regressed from last year. So, um, you know, for as far as Josh Jacobs goes, uh, he's getting hit as soon as the ball gets in his hands. He's got no room to move when he gets uh, on running plays, and then there's not a lot of time for Jimmy G in the, the, in the pocket. So I think they're um, – and but that kind of also go, kind of goes on that uh, you see Mike Daniels, Mike Daniels, the lack of confidence, like he's made some questionable play calls because clearly he's not really have a confidence in his, in his offense, which is kind of alarming for a guy who he's an offensive guru. So that's not a good sign. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely been kind of a glaring. They only have uh, maybe averaging 16 points a game so far. Well, it sounds familiar. They have a really good running back that they can't get going, kind of like the Patriots. They have a bad offensive line, kind of like the Patriots. And you look at Josh now, he's what, 8-14, and 14, and I believe the winning percentage now is actually worse than it was in Denver, which is tough to actually fathom considering how poorly it ended for Josh after that great start that he had. But he's now had just two top 10 offenses without Tom. 2008, he had uh, this guy Randy Moss and Wes Welker to go along with Matt Castle, so that was pretty easy. And the other year, somehow, Mac's rookie year, which seems like a feat that that actually happened. But He's also had like that Steelers game, the Sunday night game, where he has the fourth and four at what, the eight yard line. He decides to kick the field goal instead of going for it there when he was down eight points. And I think his justification was something along the lines of, hey, we got to score twice. And it's like, no, not really. You only have to score once. And they got Uh the ball, I think, back like deep in their own territory with what, like 15 seconds left or so. But what's the and I know like it's early. We're only in year two of Josh McDaniels, but is there sort of growing momentum that they could possibly move on from him after the season? I don't think so. I think uh, I think Mark Davis, the owner, has really said he wants to have patience. Like he's been kind of a little too quick to to fire guys in the past. They've had so many coaches here last year, in the last twenty years. I think he's trying to really like um, be patient with this Patriots you know, way. They've tried the the Raiders way; it hasn't worked. They're going to try the Patriots way. And I think, you know, and, and the other problem with, with Josh and the offense was, so last year he came in and they kind of gave Derek Carr an extension. Like, yeah, I can make Derek Carr as a good quarterback. I can make it work with Derek. We'll be fine. Give him an extension. They do not get along. The chemistry's not there. The offense, you know, goes to crap. And they wind up benching the guy the last two games. They trade him. Uh, they, they don't they trade him. They have to cut him. They can't trade him. So they cut him. And then this year they signed Jimmy G. And about $34 million guarantees. So he's taken two stabs at quarterbacks. He's, it's been a costly moves in both cases and both times it hasn't worked out and i guess it's early maybe jimmy can get better and, and who knows but so far uh it doesn't seem that way it doesn't seem like it was a great addition with, with jimmy g yeah well and i know carr has been banged up we saw him last week he actually played better than he had most of the season his, his numbers aren't great but as you mentioned garoppolo has been bad too he's got what seven interceptions it was like the passer rating's 82.6 which is 25th i mean that'd be good if it was mac jones but for jimmy g you'd expect it to be better and If you look at his time with Kyle Shanahan, every year he's way over 90 in terms of his passer rating. So I'm wondering, like, is the fan base more upset with Jimmy's performance or is it more like do they blame Josh for it? I think it's equal. I think it's disgust, equal disgust on both parts. And it's so bad that (laughs) they're actually a lot of fans are calling for Aiden O'Connell, the the fourth round pick, which I think is hilarious because he played in the preseason he, played he was okay. great, right? In the preseason, yeah, I guess he, I guess yeah. he was great. I, I'll say okay. Some fans say he was like incredible, but again, <laughs> the preseason doesn't mean anything. I mean, especially yeah. you know, you're playing against guys who are getting like a cut. So uh, he played against the Chargers a few weeks ago, and he was he was okay. Nothing definitely had some issues, but uh, I think it's funny that fans want him to play over Jimmy G. So I think there definitely is 
uh, anger towards both. I think with Jimmy G, the concern is that you can't really throw deep. So defenses are kind of stacking line of scrimmage, which is, and that's, I'm sure the Patriots will do it this weekend. You put, you know, eight guys in the box and say, go ahead. You want to be this deep? Good luck. And, uh, and that hasn't, he hasn't been able to do it. So I think, um, if you're a fan, it's very frustrating to see that. And again, with McDaniels, you mentioned the play calling, the conservativeness, and just kind of uh, being a guy who was advertised as offensive guru when you're seeing, you know, you can't score 20 points in the game. So I think fans are equally uh, disgusted with, with both. All right. So as you can imagine, well, one thing I should say the Raiders did get right is Jacoby Myers. But as you can imagine this week, huge conversation this week about the Patriots not bringing back Jacoby Myers. And Bill Belichick said on Wednesday that he was a priority. And then he was asked if they were close on a deal. He said, relatively, yeah. And he said, free agency is free agency. My buddy Andrew Callahan from the Herald then tweeted out, this is news to the Myers camp that they were close. Everybody has the assumption that they lowballed Jacoby. And he got three for 33. They bring in Juju, who has been a complete train wreck for this team. And they gave him $16 million and guaranteed. Were the Raiders surprised that they got Jacoby at that price? Because if you look at that sort of the free agency or the free agent receivers, it wasn't like a big, good group of receivers. Like, we thought maybe he'd get more than that. But seeing the price... That's sort of what irritated Patriots fans. It's like, wait, so basically you swapped out Juju for Jacoby. And quite frankly, the Patriots had the cap space. If they really liked Juju, they could have signed both of them. So were the Raiders surprised they got him at that price? Yeah, they were. And the Raiders, there were obviously still a lot of connections between the Raiders and the Patriots in terms of the front offices and the coaching staff. So they kind of heard that the Patriots preferred Juju over, over Jacoby Myers. But again, that's probably debatable. I, don't, I mean, I don't know if you was a clear-cut guy who's better than the other one, but so far this year, and and, and Josh knew uh, Jacoby well from their days together. Like you know, undrafted guy worked hard to kind of create a spot for himself, and they thought it'd be a good fit with Jimmy G and with Devontae. Kind of was his number two weapon, the guy who, if you double team Devontae, Jacoby will definitely get his yards and get uh, some space to, to create some targets. So I think they've been really, really happy with him so far. I think they've been thrilled they they have him, and it's, but it is still uh, again alarming that he's been so good. And he still can't score 20 points a game. So even when Jacoby <laughs> Myers playing as well as he has, you still can't score points. So, uh, but uh, yeah, so definitely they were surprised he was available for that price. They were a little surprised that the Patriots went with Juju over him. And they were happy. They were happy to get him. They thought he'd be a, a key part of their offense, and, and he has been so far. Yeah, the Patriots certainly, certainly miss him. And to your point like that, you mentioned like earning a spot on the team. That's kind of like a Patriot guy, right? It almost reminds me of Edelman, where Edelman, yeah, he was drafted, but late draft pick that works hard to get a spot and you could say the same thing about Jacoby those are usually the guys that are like lifelong Patriots and unfortunately it didn't work out for Myers with the Patriots I should say it didn't work out for the Patriots because they clearly could use Jacoby right now but obviously another situation we're monitoring is Chandler Jones just because of course he was with the Patriots won a Super Bowl there and it just seems like that's a really sad situation in terms of I, I mean I remember and I know that recently he was arrested on two counts of violating a temporary protection order for domestic violence. He had those media, uh, the social media posts where he was just rambling, said some weird things about Josh McDaniels as well. How big of a distraction has that been for the team? You know, I thought it might be an issue at first because, again, he's a guy who you know was a veteran guy who was kind of not not a captain last year, but one of the leaders, kind of a guy who you know they brought in to kind of show the Patriot way. And I think the young players looked up to him a little bit. So he's a guy who kind of um, – I had some juice in the locker room, so for him to kind of uh, uh, go, off, go off the rails, I guess you know, that's a nice way to put it, because you know I don't know what, what he's going through, but clearly some of those social media posts were kind of uh, were alarming. I think you, you said things are hard to walk back from. You know, I, I know he wants to play again, and I don't know where that would be, but definitely, definitely won't be here. So I mean, um, 
So, yeah, I think it was a distraction at first, but I think um, yeah, I, I'll give Max Crosby a lot of credit. He's a guy who um, is a really good leader. He definitely, you, you watch him on the field, he's kind of going you know, a thousand miles an hour and never stops. And I think it's the same way as far as being positive, being uh, a guy who always talks to young guys, kind of gets them in the right, right from the mind. So he's really good at getting the guys to not really worry about whatever Chandler's posting right now on social media and whatever he's saying. And kind of it's unfortunate because they were counting on him and they kind of needed him. I mean, it's definitely been a kind of a, a glaring uh, hole in the defense. But um, he's done a good job of getting this team ready to play and getting them fired up and and not really worried about whatever Chandler's doing as far as, you know, posting and in his absence. Yeah, I got you. So we were looking at the comments Devontae Adams had recently about he wants to win a Super Bowl and all that. I, I'm wondering, is there, and when Aaron Rodgers like initially went to the Jets, there was a like, oh, are, are the Jets going to try to get Devontae Adams? And I know the targets were down. I know he's battling some sort of a shoulder issue. To me, he's still, if not the best, one of the best three receivers in the NFL. Is there any fear like within the organization that he may try to force his way out if things go south the rest of the way here? Yeah, I think everyone's really happy that Aaron Jones didn't play last week. If Aaron Jones plays Monday night, the Packers probably win that game. And uh, who knows what Devontae says. He's definitely been trying to, 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 to catch himself. He's he clearly frustrated, clearly says things where you can tell he's not in a great place right now. And I think, because, um, you know, he came here last year, played with his buddy Derek Carr, talking Super Bowl, talking the big things last year. That fell apart pretty quickly. And now they're kind of in a weird kind of rebuild slash we have these great players and they're kind of in a weird spot as far as uh, if you're him, I'm not sure you really can can see the the big picture right now because he's only here two more years probably. His contract gets crazy and, and he can't afford him. He can't pay him $40 million in, in two years. So he's got a short window here and that window does not look great. So I think um, on top of that, and he plays his old team last week, a hugely emotional game, and he gets four targets. So yeah. uh, clearly he's um, he's not in a, in a great spot right now. And I think that everyone's happy that they, they won that game Monday because if they didn't, it might have gotten uh, a little ugly, I, I would say. Yeah, and you wonder too, like you get a lot from, if this does get bad for the Raiders, you can get a lot from in return, and you would think that they're going to be in the market to – draft a quarterback next year if they don't make a run here down the stretch of the season and we hope the Patriots actually draft a quarterback too that would be nice I'm rooting for them to tank the rest of the season and I think Bill is going to inadvertently tank he's going to try to win and he's going to lose because the roster is so bad so getting into this matchup specifically Vic the Patriots offensive line has been their offense in general has been a mess but especially the line their 30th and pass block win rate from ESPN's metric and now they have to deal with Max Crosby, who Pro Football Focus has him at 34 total pressures, only Aiden Hutchinson has more. And I don't know if it's because the team that he's been playing for like hasn't been good recently, but I feel like he's still one of the most underrated defensive players in the league. We've seen lesser players wreck games against the Patriots this season, like much lesser players than Max Crosby. I kind of feel like he's going to wreck this game on Sunday. How do you feel about... That side of the ball, the Patriots trying to stop Max Crosby from basically making hell, Mac, Mac Jones's life hell. It's crazy because um, I think he's gotten better, which is kind of hard to imagine. But this year, there's no one else up front. He's kind of doing it by himself. I mean, there's like, well, I'm basically, I'm playing D-tackle. You're, you're on the other end right now. But you're rushing on the other end from him. So he's gotten not much help, and he's kind of moving around. And he can't, you can't double him. He can't chip him. He's just uh, kind of a freak, just kind of never stops. So... I know that's the pitcher's goal is to get him out of the game, but that's every team's goal. I'm sure the Packers last week, that was their main goal, and they couldn't do it. So uh, it really is impressive, and it gives them a chance to 
The defense has not been terrible this this year. It's been actually, I think, average in terms of the stats. So and he's the only reason why. I mean, so, um, yeah, he definitely has that ability to kind of uh, to ruin the game for you guys this weekend. All right. So also with this Patriots offense, they don't have one receiver that's in the top 50 in receiving yards this season. I'm wondering, and Ramondre Stevenson has not been good either. He's at 2.8 yards per carry. He's been, it's been actually kind of shocking watching Ramondre because even last year with a bad offensive line, he still put up really good numbers. He was at like five yards per carry and it's a similar offensive line. You could argue a little bit worse, but it was bad last year as well. So I'm wondering have the Raiders like sig- signaled out any specific players that they're worried about? Because I, if I was defending this Patriots offense, I don't, I don't really know who I would be worried about. Like the Patriots are going to talk up Devontae Adams and Josh Jacobs. I, I don't know. Like, are the Raiders talking anybody up this week? Not really, but I think they have a probably a, a little fear of their linebackers and pass coverage. So I think last week I mentioned Aaron Jones last week. I think he would have mm-hmm. been a real tough deal with maybe Stevenson or Hunter Henry this week. I don't know what it mean. I'm surprised he. Didn't do much last week in terms of fantasy. I have him in fantasy, by the way. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, those are guys I think if you're the Raiders, you kind of worry about. Because I think those guys catching the ball in the backfield or your tight end, that seems to be where you can hurt the defense the most right now. All right. And then I was looking at the, the Raiders' rush defense has been an issue, 129.4 yards per game. As I was saying, the Patriots, they haven't been able to run the ball. They're 30th in success rate. They're 29th in yards per carry. Could they have any luck against this Raiders defense running the football? We've been talking about this for five weeks now, Vic. Hey, can the Patriots get the run game going? Is this the week they could actually do it? Yeah, I think so. Again, the Raiders defense is not outside of Max Crosby. I mean, this. I mean, there aren't a lot of guys in this defense who I'd be confident that start for other teams in the NFL. I think, um, and that's why Chandler Jones was, was a big loss because they drafted Tyree Wilson in the first round. But he's really more of a project. He definitely have trouble getting up blocks. He's not really a factor in the run game for a first-round pick. Linebackers, I think, are pretty mediocre. Uh, secondary, uh, I think Jalen Merrick's been better this year. He's probably been a, a good player for him. But it's not a lot in terms of talent on this defense. So I give him credit for they've got good stats the last two weeks. Uh, but um, clearly you can, should be able to run the ball against them and, and have some success that way. So do you like the Pats or the Raiders in this one? I thought we just had our our, our – Athletic podcast, and uh, I got people that were surprised. I picked the Patriots. I just think it's a, wow. good, it's a good it's a good spot for them. I think uh, you know the Raiders coming off an emotional win on a short week. I think um, the crowd's not really a great home crowd. I mean, definitely it's always a split crowd, so it's not going to be a huge home factor there. And I was kind of surprised. You know, the I listen, you look at the point spreads and what people are thinking in Vegas, and so the Patriots have been outscored by seventy points the last two weeks. They're on the road, <laughs> and they're only three point dogs. To the Raiders, and I think that shows you just the lack of respect in the Raiders defense and in the offense, and Jimmy G and, and McDaniels. So I think Bill Belichick, if you're ever going to stop the bleeding, uh, this is the week against your old guys, your old protégés, you know them pretty well. They would have won here last year if not for the freak. Jacoby Myers, you know, lateral back to Chandler Jones. So I think they uh, won a close game this week. Yeah, we'll see. Patriots fans would be ecstatic. Oh, maybe they wouldn't because maybe they're like me. The yeah, exactly. This team tanks. I don't know if it's a good thing to win or not. Well, a, lot hey, of fans, a lot of Raider fans were upset last week because they wanted to lose. They were thinking Caleb Williams. Like, oh, why yeah. we beat the Packers? We want Caleb Williams. But again, if you had Devontae oh. Adams and Josh Jacobs, you're not going to lose that many games if you yeah. get Caleb Williams. So. Yeah, oh, Caleb but... Williams. I mean, that, that guy is watching that guy every Saturday. He is unbelievable. And there's other good quarterbacks, too, like Drake May is pretty good. Yeah, it's, it's a good draft, S- for sure. Sanders is good. Ewers, all these guys. Hey, so what's going on with Brady? Is he ever going to come in, like, as the minority owner or whatever? Like, what's going on there? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, for some reason, I, uh, Mark Davis gave him a huge discount, which the league's like, why would you? We can't do that. This is like, this is premium stuff. And 
Tom Brady can Tom Brady can afford to pay full price. I think his net worth was like a five hundred million dollars. So I'm not sure why Mark did that until the league flagged it. But I think at some point they'll probably reach a, a price that everyone likes, and he wants to do it. Mark's really excited about it, and I think he'll help kind of uh, rebrand this team. And who knows? But uh, yeah, I think it'll be just a matter of time before Tom Brady is uh, in the box with um, Mark Davis and uh, you know whatever. It's it's a weird it's a weird deal. It's I don't it's uh, I guess if you can't beat him. You know, have them join you and, and try and change who you are. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it will happen. Yeah, I know he's in on, like, this other stuff with him. I think he's he's minority owner of, like, the Las Vegas Aces, or he has, yeah. a, he has a piece in that. So I think it eventually happened. I just found it weird that it hasn't happened yet. All right, Vic, before I let you go, is it true that in Allegiant Stadium that there is a picture of the Tuck Rule game? Yeah, there's, there's a lot kind of um, – uh, so there's all kinds of weird stuff in the stadium, but definitely I think that's a, a, a play where the Raiders feel it kind of turned, you know, a pivotal moment in history. I think if that game it, it was correctly officiated, they feel that it would change their history and also change the Patriots' history. They're not, they're not sure Tom Brady is, is Tom Brady if the right call is made there. Yeah, I know. I watched the – they had a 30 for 30 on it where Tom and Charles Woodson are watching the game together. It is crazy. Think about, like, that's how the Patriots' dynasty – was born after that. I still think that Brady would have been an all-time great quarterback just because we saw how great he became. But I don't know. Does Bill become as great of a coach as Bill is if that goes down? Because 2002, they weren't a great team. So I don't know. Well, because it's short term. At that point, Drew Bledsoe was still pretty good. So if that rule doesn't happen, he probably gets his job back. And he would have been, I think, okay. So who knows what happens with Tom. But when Tom gets a shot at that point. But uh, the Raiders clearly changed their history also. So uh, it was a, a huge, a huge play. Yeah, I forgot. Rich Gannon won MVP, right? Was it 2001 yeah. or 2001 of those years, right? Yeah, yeah it was MVP. Then uh, he was right in there, played the Bucks the year after that, and they got killed by Gruden because Gruden knew all the play calls. So um, <laughs> and that, that's, that started the, the 20-year skid where they've had, like, I think, two winning seasons in the last 20 years. So um, it's, been, uh, it's been a dark time for, for Raider fans. Yeah, I'll tell you what. We'll see if Josh can turn around. The one guy that misses Josh is Mac Jones because ever since Josh left, it's gone south for Mac. <laughs> I, I can see Mac Jones here next year for sure. So who knows? Hey, you guys can have him. You, you can take him. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it'll be expensive, right? It should be a, yeah. a, a six-round pick. Probably do it. Yeah, yeah they would be like swap a six for a seventh or something like that. Yeah, well, Josh, does a, Josh definitely loves Mac Jones. I'm sure it goes both ways, but I remember when they were here for the uh, – Season stuff, and we asked him about him. Definitely, uh, he talked about Mac Jones in a way he didn't talk about Derek Carr. You definitely could see the uh, the joy and love in his eyes. So, that's definitely his guy. Yeah, I actually think like that year with Mac got him the Raiders job because it's not like he'd been getting a lot of opportunities. I really think it's the Mac year because everybody yeah. can look at the Tom years and be like, okay, well, you already hired him after Tom with the Broncos and he failed. So, I actually think that's why he got the because it wasn't the Newton year. I mean, they weren't good with Cam Newton, no. so I think it was the Mac year. I think you're right. I think definitely that, that year, definitely uh, Mark Mark Davis thought that uh, Josh could definitely do it with the young guy. Yeah, we'll see if they're reunited. Patriots fans would be happy. All right, that is Vic Tafer, senior writer at The Athletic, covers the Raiders. Vic, thank you so much for the time, man. Really appreciate it. And I would say enjoy the game on Sunday, but I don't think it's going to be a very entertaining football game. Hmm. It'll be good. I mean, last year, who knew last year was going to be such a great finish? So you never know with, with NFL. It's, uh, <laughs> that's, why, that's why we all show up. That's a good point. Great stuff, Vic. Thank you so much. All right, take care. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Vic. Had a ton of fun talking with B-Rob as well as the Celtics season is about to get underway. This Patriots-Raiders game 
Not expecting a lot of fireworks in this one, so let's get to our greatest Boston bet of the week, thanks to our friends at FanDuel, and we bring in producer extraordinaire Jamie McClellan as well. Jamie, so I'm looking at this Patriots line on FanDuel right now. They are two-and-a-half-point dogs in Las Vegas against the Raiders. We, of course, saw the Patriots fall to the Raiders last mm -hmm. year in Las Vegas, and Jacoby Myers is on the other side of that one, throwing the ball across the field. Now, of course, he's playing for the Raiders. I just have, I'm not saying that I think the Raiders are a good football team. I think they stink. I think they're poorly coached, as I got into that a bit with Vic. But how can I pick the Patriots to win a football game right now? It That's seems right. like we've mentioned it throughout the week. I mean, this is rock bottom for the organization. I, I don't see them win, winning a game. So I'll take the Raiders to cover the two and a half. I don't see the Patriots. I know two and a half, like, okay, maybe they lose by a point or something. I don't even see that, like... I would actually be surprised if the Patriots like keep this within single digits. I don't yeah. think the Raiders are good. Let me be clear. I just think the Patriots are one of the worst teams in the NFL. No, I, I totally agree. I mean, I said last week on the pod, I thought they'd at least put up a fight against the Saints, and that was coming after a blowout against the Cowboys. So I think it's just time to, until they show otherwise, you got to just believe your eyes when you see them. They they're, they suck. They suck the last two weeks. So <laughs> until they play better, I don't know why. Why would you think, oh, they're going to fix it in practice? They had a great week of practice going to last week's game and then shit the bed. So, I mean, it's a minus two and a half point spread. They have only scored three points in two weeks. So, yeah, I mean, if you're going to bet, I, I agree. Well, and Juju being out may help them. Like if Juju can't play because he's in concussion protocol, that may help them. Demario you mean Douglas, help the Patriots or help because no help the Patriots. Yeah, could it could help the Patriots? Demario Douglas being out will hurt the Patriots. Yes, as I alluded to at the top of this, he's the most explosive playmaker and the best playmaker right. they have right now. By the way, while you're here, Jamie, not that you like as if you weren't here the whole time. What did you make of Doug and? Callahan's articles. Those are our guys, man. It's a great article. I, 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 for some reason, you know, you hit on Belichick not using analytics. I, I was blown away by that. I just assumed he at least partially covered. He's a smart guy. It's like I yeah. figured, obviously, he goes to the scouting, but you think that was part of the game plan. And a couple of things while you were talking that caught my attention was like, oh, they didn't have the GPS tracking on Devontae Parker and guys like that. But it's like, you're watching the film on these guys it's the same answer right like yeah if you're, yep. if you're watching them, there's still separation you don't need the numbers like oh he's got a guy all over him every single play and then the other thing i thought too was i feel like it might be a bit of revisionist history where they're talking about how oh we thought mac was just going to be a cog in the machine like he was never going to carry the team etc it's like well why did you spend the 15th pick on him then like, yeah. I think for a 15th pick, you want a, like a great guy, like get him in the third round, get him when you got Jimmy Garoppolo, right? Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. And I guess partially that was desperation and he fell to you at 15. Mm -hmm. Like we see a lot of these teams trade up and it's like, hey, if you don't trade up for your quarterback, do you really like him that much? Mm -hmm. Like that was kind of a theory that was thrown right. around at that point in time. But the other thing is this, I almost feel like 2021 was like the worst thing that could happen for the Patriots. For and the Bill class? actually talked, like they talked about this in the article, Bill saying, we got to find out who we really are. Mm -hmm. Like making the oh. playoffs, they thought that, okay, this is who we are. And if you go through that 2021 season, so many injuries happened. Mm -hmm. Like when they played the Browns, Nick Chubb was not available. Baker mm -hmm. didn't play in that game, right? When they played Carolina, Christian McCaffrey didn't play. Like throughout that season, they yeah. had all these injuries in terms of the teams they were going up against, and that's sort of how they ended up benefiting from getting into the postseason. It almost seems like that was the worst thing that happened to them because it almost felt like, oh, we're on to something here. It's like, eh, not so much. Not so yeah. much, guys. That could be. Yeah, that's a good point. They, they got some lucky breaks and stuff. I think but I think they referenced some game that I've completely forgot about in my brain. They referenced us beating the Jags 50-10 to 10 that season. Yeah, the Trevor Lawrence like, game. I'm like, whoa, 
We scored 50 points. Yeah, that was in the middle. That's when basically like I remember I was at my old employer at the time. The Patriots went into the bye week as the number one seed. Right. And when they came out of the bye week, they there was like some stuff going on where they were like unhappy with the fact that they didn't have like a full bye because they played the after the bye, they played on Saturday instead of Sunday. So they uh-huh. didn't get like the full bye allotment, which like, I don't know why you'd be mad about that considering like, and this is just, this is like rumors and reports at the time. But the point being is like, we were trying to figure out what happened during the bye week. Like this is the greatest mystery of all time because they came <laughs> out of the bye week and they just weren't the same team. They right. got killed by the Colts. They were horrible in that game. And then of course, yeah, you have the Jags win, but then we saw it kind of carry over. They just were not good down the stretch of the season. Unfortunately, they got killed by the Bills after that as well. Yeah, I mean, they mentioned. I guess that's why they mentioned the article. They said that was kind of the end of Mac Jones after the bye week. Like he basically hasn't had a good game since then. He really hasn't. Years. Yeah, they yeah. mentioned a couple of things. Like maybe guys figure them out. Like they said they forced Jones to throw the outside, where the numbers indicate he's the worst quarterback in the league. And you see that. I mean, he just doesn't have any arm strength. So he's got a noodle. Maybe they just figured him out. It's like a rookie at bat. You know, you find out where his cold zones are in the strike zone. Yeah, he's got a noodle. It's like remember that guy Zach Godley that used to pitch for the Red Sox during the COVID year. And he grunts. I he think grunts. I, I blocked him out. <laughs> Every time he throw the ball. <laughs> it's like 80 oh, yes, miles an hour. That <laughs> <guy>. <laughs> it's like Nate Evaldi's out here. And by the way, another gem for Nate. Thanks, Heim, yes. for that. I mean, that was great. Thanks, thanks, Heim. Appreciate that. Nate Evaldi's one of the best postseason Playoff pitchers game, over the past right? four to five years. But thanks a lot for that. Nate does it. He's like, oh, he throws like 97, 98. Yeah. Then you get Zach Godley it. doing it. It's like, hey, bro. And it was <laughs> it was so like clear during COVID because nobody was there. So you could just okay. hear it like picking up on the mic. But going yeah, this, the Zach Godley era. All right, Jamie, before we go, I got a five leg parlay. Yeah, I fair. mentioned this earlier. So plus 214, all favorites. I'm going against the spreads this week. I got to hit on my parlay. I've missed my last two. Hit one earlier this season. I got to get back on track. So I'm going all favorites. And now this is like, this is a square bet, Brian. You're taking all the favorites. I like but I'm taking. Yeah, I'm taking no spreads. I'm taking San Francisco to beat the Browns in Cleveland. I like that Browns defense, but San Francisco is on a different level than everybody. Jags to beat the Colts at home, despite Minshew Mania returning, revenge game. Dolphins to beat the Panthers at home. That's the worst team in the league. Bills to beat the Giants at home, and the Bills are coming Mm -hmm. off a loss. And then the Rams to beat the Cardinals at home. I like the Rams. I know the Cardinals are frisky, but I like the Rams. They've been much better than I thought they would be. What do you think? I think it's pretty safe. I'd say the one the one thing is I think the, the Colts are definitely a little frisky, especially, you know, they got Jay, I mean, first of all, Zach Moss crushed it last week and now maybe yep. a little two headed action with him and Taylor. I mean, that's the only one that might trip you up, I, w- I would imagine, especially divisional. They kind of you're always beefing those two teams. Yeah. You know what tripped me up last week was the freaking Bills in Jacksonville. And, was, I mean, yeah. in in London, I shouldn't have done that. I, I remember I thought about it. I'm like the London thing. I usually don't want to bet on the London. I shouldn't have done that. That was a mistake. That's on me. I'm like one of those outfielders that drops a ball. I'm like hitting my chest right now. It's on me. It's like, well, who it's else's fault would it be? Yeah, but I'm Tottenham. Yeah, Hotspur Stadium. No, I think that's pretty good. I, again, that's only one that divisional game. The other ones, I mean, some of those games are, are barely games. Like that Bills-Giants game, that's going to be over in a second. Yeah, no doubt about that. All right, Jamie, great stuff, man. Thank you, Brian. Talk later. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in, 617-396-7172. So if you're aggravated during the game on Sunday against the Raiders, leave us a voicemail. James White will be with us. You can also email us at offthepike at gmail.com. And, hey, if you want to weigh in on the Celtics or the Bruins, certainly can do that as well. The Beast play again on Saturday night. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.
Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700, or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 